You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, insect repellents. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. I'm your host, Ashlyn Noble. And uh, we have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Jim Newman. Howdy. And it is still summertime here in the northern hemisphere. And we are all suffering the effects of bug bites, or at least I am suffering enough for everybody. <laughs> you get all the bugs that don't bite me. Yeah. I We went to the beach yesterday, and there was about five minutes worth of walking through the bush in order to get to the beach and on the way in it was fine and on the beach it was fine and then on the way back I got about 5,000 bites in the span of five minutes. So today I'm extraordinarily itchy and I want to find out what exactly will stop this from happening ever again. She is like candy to them. (laughs) (laughs) And this was actually a listener suggested topic, right? It was, yeah. So we like to listen to our listeners occasionally. It goes the other way. And when we come across a, a good topic that we can put a, a good amount of research and interest into, we are happy to take those on. So give us your topics. Yeah, we've done a couple of other listener-requested ones before. The yep. uh, animal intelligence one was a listener request. So, um, And some listener-requested segments on larger parts of the shows, mm-hmm. like Drake and his moon. <laughs> yeah. And nobody has sent me any questions, so shame on you, listeners. Either you just have no problems, which would be great, but I don't believe that. <laughs> or we've solved them all already. <laughs> We're just that good, guys. <laughs> Send us your questions, and I will give you my solicited advice, which yeah. is a service that not many people get. <laughs> oh, they all get advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, just yeah. to be clear. I, I wanted to be very specific about that. <laughs> So we're going to start out with some interesting historic insect repellents, courtesy of our local history nerd, Lauren. Thanks, hon. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we have a topic, she says, you want to do the history of it? Yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was really skeptical before I started doing the research for this topic, because daily life has a way of slipping through the cracks when we record history. I was thinking the only part of my segment would be, and they rubbed themselves with dung for 10,000 years, and... <laughs> That kept the mosquitoes away. Next segment! But, because no one thinks it's important to write down, like, the location of the midden, or how people managed to go to the bathroom while on crusade, that was just basically, they went where they had to. Or what that flower was in Rome that is depicted everywhere, and that apparently prevents uh, pregnancy. Yeah, Yeah. the birth control flower that they... Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Researching this topic, even just lightly, you find that some of the earliest and most detailed writings that we have which come from Sumar, so those writings are about 5,000 years old, they deal with insects and insect repellents. Hmm. All the way up, it was a hot topic. (laughs) (laughs) We have always hated mosquitoes. (laughs) When you're living in an agrarian society, what's the worst thing to happen? Bugs. These facts shouldn't have surprised me so much. As humans, we've had to coexist with insects since, well, since humans existed. 
And there is no way a buzzing, biting, annoying mosquito didn't also annoy primitive humans as much as it does us. Pliny the Elder, Pliny, I feel like I'm on sawbones, <laughs> wrote about several insects and repellents in his natural history. So the repellents were both useful and some that were apocryphal. Because he did, did write about the insects that didn't seem to have either mouth for eating or excreting. <laughs> so Whenever somebody says apocryphal, I always want to append or at least wildly inaccurate. I always from Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. I always want to associate it with apocalypse, <laughs> apocryphal apocalypse, like all apocalypses so far. So, Pliny's suggestions included using basil to ward off flies, but basil did breed scorpions, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> and Which one is worse? There, flies or scorpions? No, I'm I'm curious what that means. Like, did was he thinking there was some sort of Scorpio spontaneous generation with basil, or just like it attracted them and then they you know made more scorpions? I think it was the attracting, and that's where they laid their eggs. Oh, ooh. We yeah, have a lot of basil in our garden. Watch out for scorpions. <laughs> the scorpion thing is not true. <laughs> that's the apocryphal that, part. Yeah, that's but the apocryphal. I'm scared. Also, they don't survive here. You're fine. <laughs> yeah. I will eat all of the basil and all of the tomatoes with it because, oh my goodness, our garden is beautiful. <laughs> Pliny did suggest using basil to ward off flies, despite the scorpions, and to burn a fennel-based resin to rid the body of nits and lice. So you would burn the resin and then just smoke yourself with it. Right. Fennel I'm, resin, so would you have to, like, make a syrup and then reduce it? Yeah, you would have to distill the fennel into a resin-like substance, and then... It sounds like a lot of work. If you're coated in nits and lice, <laughs> you're going to try it. Yeah, do what you got to yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> in addition to things you put on your body or things you eat to ward them off, uh, strewing the floor of a home with plants was a favored way across several cultures and centuries to get rid of insects. So you would put down the rushes, and then you would put crushed plants that were known to keep away, or thought to keep away, certain insects over top of them, and then you would just keep renewing those plants. So when I refer to strewing in this, that's what I mean. And you'd sweep out the rushes twice a year or so and put down fresh ones. I know. <laughs> we're not dealing with the same levels of hygiene <laughs> and the same levels of... <laughs> they did what they had to. Palladius, he was a Roman author of Diri Rustica, which was a treaty on farming and agriculture from the 4th century, claimed that cumin ground into wine, would rid the body of nits and lice. Gross. So, cumin wine is gross? So, gross. like, taco wine? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, there are lots of things you could put in wine where I'd be like, that's totally fine. Cumin is not, is not among those things. You don't today. have to drink it. You would bathe in it. You don't have to drink cumin. <laughs> that's not better. <laughs> Certainly that's more just expensive. a waste of wine. So, so that's supposed to rid you of what? Nits, nits and, and lice. Nits yeah. and lice. Okay, and then attract all the flies. Well, you would, yeah, wash your hair, and then you would Rinse it and then you get the basil. (laughs) Then you have a scorpion problem. (laughs) And then you get the gorillas. (laughs) It's basically just trading one problem for another. That's like season by season. There was an old lady who bathed in her wine. (laughs) (laughs) The nits and the lice, they left her just fine. (laughs) So Palladius also (laughs) Sorry. Palladius also recommended using cumin and cucumber seeds mixed together and cooked and strewn on the floor to rid the house of nits. So, you know, that could actually be a snack. Like, mm-hmm. cumin on cucumber seeds, that would that could be okay. Yeah. Not if you're going to eat them off the floor. Well, no, no, no. Before. <laughs> but it sounds more reasonable than bathing in cumin wine. We can try these. But well, not more effective. No. <laughs> so I'm going to betray my ignorance here, which is something that I like to do as often as possible. What exactly is a nit? Is it like a gnat? 
No, a nil no. is like the, uh, the lice. lice. Oh, a, 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 a louse. A louse. No, no, no. Uh, an egg. Yeah. Yeah. A, okay. A yeah. louse yeah. egg is a knit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I yeah. should have clarified that. And for our friends who are listening who are not history nerds, what are rushes, Lauren? Rushes are a plant. (laughs) (laughs) And why did they put them on the floor? So things would smell nicer and because their floors were made of dirt. Okay. They're basically used as ancient flooring that could be replaced every once in a while. I'm going to butcher this, but Arab physician Abu Ali al-Husan ibn Abd Allah ibn Sina, he left several written records of over 800 plants and their health and everyday benefits. He was also the person given credit for inventing the technique of distilling essential oils from these plants. Mm. And then those essential oils went out from his area of the world, and that was part of the spice trade. Okay. So when you walk into a health food store and it's like getting hit with a brick in the nose, blame that guy. Yeah. (laughs) You you can't pronounce his name, but you can blame him. (laughs) No one would have ever figured it out if it wasn't for him. (laughs) (laughs) So during the Middle Ages, people used similar tactics as in antiquity. There was the floor strewing. There was pomanders, which is like little sachets full of incense. So they were full of herbs and things, smelly things that repelled the insects. And they also used herbal washes and rinses on their body and clothing to ward off or remove insects. Twice a year. People bathed bathed a lot more than twice a year. I'm just joking. I know. Easter and Christmas. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, before you stepped into the church when you were allowed your two days off of work a year. Yeah. So what herbs did these people in the Middle Ages use? So I mentioned basil and cumin and roses and cucumber before, but the list is long and it varied for both geographical area and the various bugs and vermin that you were trying to get rid of. I can't personally speak to the efficacy of any of these, but this is, these are what were written down in several different type, different volumes. There was bay leaf they, that was used for strewing and in a wash to deter fleas and lice. And it mostly grew in the Mediterranean area, so that was it wasn't as popular in Northern Europe. It was also used to keep weevils out of flour and milling equipment. So you would crush a bunch of bay leaves through the milling equipment every once in a while, and that would keep them free of bugs. Hmm. And its modern uses include pretending to do something in soup. <laughs> I can taste the difference a bay leaf makes, Jim. <laughs> I used to... I, I'm a bay leaf atheist. <laughs> I maintain that, that bay leaf is, is stone soup. <laughs> no. You just aren't using it right. He's not the soup maker in the house. No. <laughs> so chamomile was an antiseptic washing agent and also used for strewing. The cinnamon's an interesting one. There's a big long list of cinnamon and cassia uses through history. Cinnamon use goes back as far as Pharaonic Egypt. It was one of the herbs used in mummification and it was used to keep bugs out of cloth hmm. and out of pretty much everything else. If you're going to find um, herbal uses of bug repellent, you're going to find cinnamon mm-hmm. pretty much anywhere you could get it or get it traded for. At least it smells better than cumin. <laughs> I like cumin, but I, if I'm going to be smelling something all the time, I would go with cinnamon. Definitely. I like the smell of cumin, but sometimes there's a little too much with the, the stinky feet, so yeah. I just, I don't like everything smelling like tacos. That's the Really? Thing. That's the difference between you and me, I think. <laughs> Does it just make you crave tacos? or No, it's just, I, I like tacos, and I, I quite enjoy cumin in lots of ways, but it's it's one of those things where it's like, I've had enough tacos now. I don't think that phrase has ever entered my brain. <laughs> nope. This is why you are the dietitian. 
And I'm the fat vegan. <laughs> we found this adorable little sign at Target when we were down there the other week. It was just a piece of glass with a white frame around it, and on the glass was etched, I heart taco. <laughs> Tacos, yeah. And we were going to get it and bring it home, but we were so broke. <laughs> it belongs in our kitchen. <laughs> Next time we're in the States, we will get the I heart tacos <laughs> kitchen accessory. Tacos are good, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, cinnamon. Cinnamon is great. <laughs> Back to historical bug repellents. Cloves. <laughs> Cloves were widely used as an antiseptic and for sweetening the breath and for killing pain. Hmm. I really don't like the taste of cloves, but I guess it's better than having fish breath. So these are all the fall spices that we're going through now. Yes. Actually, we're doing these... Pumpkin spice insect repellent. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say that. We're doing them in alphabetical order, but clove was the... I'm just imagining that bottle of pumpkin spice syrup that we have with, like, an aerosol applicator. We can do this. No! It's so sticky. (laughs) So sticky. I have an essential oil perfume from the company Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab that is just called Pumpkin Spice Everything. It is delicious. (laughs) In addition to being an antiseptic and for sweetening the breath and killing pain, cloves were held between the teeth to keep the plague away, which isn't really, you know, a bug in the sense that we're talking about, but it's a bug. Teeny, teeny, (laughs) tiny little bug. So cloves only grew in two small islands in Indonesia, so they were very expensive and not used for strewing. Yeah, they were part of the spice trade. Back to cumin was long known as an insect repellent, and they found cumin in King Tut's tomb. Hmm. One strain, uh, the black cumin, was used to keep bugs out of manuscripts. So it kept the bugs off the vellum. Fennel was not only mentioned by Pliny, but Charlemagne declared that fennel was essential in every imperial garden due to its healing properties and household uses, including the warding off of bugs. Well, except for the fact that Charlemagne didn't exist because that's part of the phantom time period that the government wants you to believe in. Good call back, Jim. <laughs> it's better to just acknowledge and move on. <laughs> <laughs> Fennel is mentioned in the Tenacium centalis. I butchered my Latin there. It's being a useful domestic herb. It was widely known as an insect repellent, and powdered fennel seeds were used to repel flies. So you would put them in your food stores or around your food stores. Crushed fennel leaves were thought to keep fleas at bay. Not sure if it's true, but that's what it was thought. Lavender was also used to keep away flies and to make everything smell like lavender, which would drive Ashland crazy. The worst herbal smell. Oh. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about smells today, apparently. I <laughs> have a lot of thoughts about smells a lot of the time. That's <laughs> true. Marjoram was a popular strewing herb used for its insect repellent and disinfecting properties. Marjoram was mentioned in, as an antiseptic washing water recipe in Le Manger de Paris. Wow, my French is bad, I'm sorry. <laughs> it was used to disinfect beehives and to keep the honey clean, clean and free from pests. Yeah, honey. Marjoram-flavored honey. Yeah. Mm. I don't even, I don't know if I know what marjoram tastes like. I, it's something that I never, ever use. It's one of the flavors that's in, like, a lot of um, poultry seasoning, if you yeah. remember what that tastes like. Generally. I, I, mostly, I, I think, when I, I think thyme, or not mm-hmm. thyme, sage, sage. yeah. Marjoram kind of tastes like sage, kind of okay. like oregano. If there was a gateway between sage and oregano, it would be marjoram. Oh, okay. My favorite is mint. All varieties of mint were known not only for their antiseptic and antibacterial properties, but for strewing on floors because of its abilities to repel insects and rodents. Apparently, you can put down mint and it will keep mice away. Mice are so adverse to mint that they will deliberately avoid any food that is near mint. And mint leaves also repel cockroaches and ants. My grandma used to plant it around her cabin to keep away mice and also deer. 
And it worked, she thought? She thought, but hmm. I have... try not to go on anecdote on this show. Yeah, yeah. for sure. But... <laughs> well, we can test it. It's I also like one of those things that just grows everywhere with no provocation, especially if you try and make it not grow somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't grow here, Mint. <laughs> mint is stubborn. I like it. It's tasty. I never used to like it, but recently we've been having a lot of Vietnamese food, and it's like, oh yeah, fresh mint. Mm -hmm. This stuff is amazing. We have a chocolate mint plant in our garden that is going like gangbusters this year, and it's super good. It's like chewing on an an after eight. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's really good. It is delicious. so cool. Mm -hmm. I go out the back way to get to the bus in the morning, and I have a little piece of mint (laughs) on my way. (laughs) We're almost at the end of the list. Roses were used as a strew as a body wash and as a demothing agent for clothing. Roses were, apocryphally, the f- favored floor strew of Cleopatra the Seventh. She wanted every room to smell like roses. And they kept away the bugs. The Seventh hmm. was the Cleopatra that everybody's heard of? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I assume you wouldn't tell us about the, you know, if it was actually the Eighth that we knew about. Rosemary was placed under pillows to not only discourage insects, but to ward off bad dreams. Hmm. So I assume that one worked. Yeah. On both fronts. It's also delicious with strawberries. <laughs> like you take sprigs of rosemary and you slide strawberries onto them and then you put them on the barbecue and grill them. Oh, that so sounds good. interesting. Mm. Cooking tips and flea removal. <laughs> <laughs> rosemary was also one of the herbs carried around the neck in pouches to be sniffed by the wearer when traveling in areas where the plague was prevalent. So if you've seen those plague doctor masks with the big, yep. big long beaks that were stuffed with the things so they wouldn't smell the plague, rosemary was in there. Rue was considered a protection from the plague, was carried in pockets and strewn on the floors of courts for protections for, against fever, lice, and other vermin. Sage, getting back to the, to the chicken spices. Mm, chicken. <laughs> sage was sacred. In Latin, sage is, is called salver, which means to be in good health, to save, or to cure. So a popular Latin <laughs> phrase translated means, why should a man die when sage grows in his garden? Hmm. <laughs> cure all cures? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> The sandalwood was and is still used to keep insects out of books and manuscripts. So they sprinkle sandalwood on ancient manuscripts to keep bugs out. And okay. it smells delightful. Yes. It is also used on clothing and in storage chests to keep out the bugs. So like cloves, sandalwood was very expensive to middle-aged Europe, so it was not used very lightly. You didn't strew it on the floors. I've also seen some modern accounts where they couldn't find any citronella candles, so they took the sandalwood candles outside, and it kept the bugs away. Might actually work better than citronella. Might be something to try. So tansy was used as a strew and hung from home rafters to keep out the pests. Tansy is also really, really good about, about keeping away flies. I don't know what tansy is. Never heard of that. Okay, I'll bring some over. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, growing, it keeps bugs out of nearby garden plants. Mm. So people would plant a couple of rows of tansy to keep the bugs away. So I couldn't find the current studies, but but I'll find them to put them in the show notes. There have been tests done that show tansies ward off both houseflies and mosquitoes. So that's why they would be hung from the rafters to dry. (laughs) Henry Dunster, who was the first president of Harvard University was buried in a coffin packed with tansy. When the coffin was unearthed almost 180 years later, I don't know why, but they did. The tansy still... (laughs) They had to find his gold. (laughs) The tansy, it still held its shape and fragrance 180 years later after being stuffed in with a dead guy. Wow. Thyme has been used for strewing on the floor and when burnt as a repellent since antiquity. Thyme was the first one that I could find information for. Like cinnamon, it's one of the major herbs used for Egyptian mummification. I wouldn't have thought that, because thyme seems very 
Italian and newer to me. I think that's just because we're used to Italian cuisine. Yeah. (laughs) It just doesn't seem... But yeah, it doesn't seem to fit the same... It doesn't have that same sort of, like, um, tropical climate kind of feel. It's not a fertile crescent herb to me. Yeah. The last one I could find was yarrow, which is a very popular strewing herb in Northern Europe. Yarrow grew everywhere that wasn't really hot. So it was the popular herb of choice for throwing on the floor in the northern climates. So you may have noticed that most of my research is Eurocentric, because that's what I could find a lot of research in my go-to information pots for. I did find some information on North American herbs used for insect repellent. Most of these accounts were written by Europeans, so that, and they concern the area that is now the northeast United States. It's what was available at the time. Absolutely. So a writer at the time, Robert Beverly, mentioned an ointment that the Powhatans devised by crushing the roots of pakun, I have no idea what pakun is, and wild angelica, which was mixed with bear's oil and rubbed on the skin to conserve the substance of the body. This mixture also kept away lice, fleas, and other troublesome vermine from coming near them. Wait, what's bear's oil? Bear's oil. So you would taste from a bear. Yeah, rendered bear fat. Okay. (laughs) Penny royal, mint, again, and an unidentified plant known as scarlet root were also used along the eastern seaboard, to ward off and remove insects, especially deer ticks and horseflies. And if you've ever been bitten by a horsefly, yeah, you want some repellent. Mm-hmm. Ow. Mm-hmm. Ow. Also used were fats rendered from animals such as fish and raccoon to block both the sun and things getting to your skin. Speaking of terrible smells. Yep. <laughs> but it's better than the what I thought I would find with the research of coating yourself in powdered dung and hoping the, that you yeah. don't sweat it off before the bugs eat you. I don't know. I might choose raccoon grease over horsefly bites. Mm. It might be a tough one, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'd choose it over deer tick bites. Mm. Pests having been pests, you can be sure that this was not even scratching the surface of useful plants, especially since it's Eurocentric and Eastern North America-centric. Right. I'm pretty sure nearly everything growing has been tried at least once. Will burning this or strewing this on the floor or... Eating this? Keep away the bugs? Let's test it and see. (laughs) And confirmation bias being what it is, most of them are probably like, yes, that definitely helped. Even if it was just even the smoke keeping them away. Yeah. Or it just happened to be a less buggy day for whatever reason. Or anything like that. But hey, you'll take what you can get. (laughs) So, now that Lauren is done uh, teaching us about the history of using every herb available, Lauren and I have just sort of a collection of other things that are purported to work that we're going to talk about. Moving on from the historical, I'm going to talk about a couple of things, and as Ashlyn said, they are very sort of mishmashed together. Eclectic. Eclectic. Thank you. Good word. (laughs) The first one that I'm going to talk about has historical roots, so this kind of ties in. The first bug repellent that I looked into is something called neem oil, which I hadn't actually heard of before, but I'm not up on my herbs and botanicals, so that doesn't surprise me. I ran into that one. I figured you would have, because it has been used for a very long time, and it's not Eurocentric, which is one nice thing. So what's a neem? Neem is a type of tree. Oh. Yeah. I was really not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neem. There's, expecting there's... some sort of amphibian or something? <laughs> well, it sounds almost like it would be like the seed of a tropical fruit or something. I don't know. Well, it is. I mean, it, it's a tree that grows in tropical areas. Oh, okay. So it's a tree that originated in Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent. So it's very popular in India, pa- Pakistan, Bangladesh and yeah. that. But it also grows in some of the surrounding countries as well. 
So it's a neem tree and it does fruit. And the neem oil can come from the pressing the fruits and seeds cool. of the neem tree. So like but, an olive? Yeah, sort of, sort of like that. Yeah. Uh, but the, the leaves of the neem tree have also been used historically for pesticidal reasons as well. The leaves were often burned, and then the smoke was said to ward off pests, flying insects, things like that. And the oil is frequently used in cosmetics and perfumes and all sorts of mm -hmm. other things, but it's also been used as a pesticide, both for crops and as a insect repellent for humans as well. The tradition of using neem dates back thousands of years. It was actually a big part of the Ayurvedic medicine traditions, mm -hmm. um, and it was typically thought of being good for all things skincare related in that way. And it's it's also a part of some other traditions in, in that part of the world as well, ancient traditions. But it's still used today. Actually, neem oil is very, very common and neem-based things, for example, neem toothpaste and neem shampoo and that are very common in that part of the world even today. Because it remains popular, we have a little bit more research and a little bit more specificity than some of the... Uh, very historical uh, herbs and botanicals that were used for this. And we found that the active ingredient is something called azadiractin. 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 It's based on the taxonomical name for the, the neem tree. Oh, I misheard you. I thought you said it was used as a diractin. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, the active ingredient is called azadiractin. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> And it's, it is actually a very common pesticide, like I said, and it's a very common pesticide that's used in organic farming right now as well. And one of the things that it does is it makes it so that insects are not able to feed on plants and it prevents their larvae from maturing or even for the adult insects to be able to lay eggs. So it definitely has some changes to fertility and, and hormones, and that's what reduces the pests on crops. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went out of my way not to look up any information about the ones that other people were doing. Yeah, yeah, me so. too, me too. I, if, if I stumbled across it just in research, I tried to just skip over it, yeah. but sometimes you, you ended up seeing a bit, but I definitely didn't look into too much. Yeah, I knew you were doing this one, so I didn't look into it too much. Excellent, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's like an organic pesticide that's actually effective? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is effective and it's used a lot currently in organic farming for a lot of things. So that's in its pesticide use. So that's when it's applied to plants. But of course, we're talking insect repellent, mainly mosquitoes and biting insects for human use. So it's a little bit different there. We don't know the exact mode of action at this point. But I mean, there's a lot of things that we don't know exactly how they work. And we use them because we know they do work, so we just go with it. So apparently, I've never smelled neem oil. Like I said, I didn't know what it was, but apparently it smells like a combination of peanuts and garlic, which is interesting. Like a satay sauce? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so, sort of, but it has that, that's the smell combination. So it has the pungency of garlic and that, but I guess some earthiness of peanuts or something? I can get behind this. That can make me hungry. <laughs> But I do believe that I also read that at times it can have a sort of sulfur smell. So that's not so appetizing. <laughs> no. Rotten eggs. Oh, yeah. No. Not so much. So is it effective for preventing bug bites for humans? Some studies have been done with it. And apparently the when the neem oil is volatized, 
usually through burning kerosene or some or something like that it can be 80 to 90 percent effective for repelling wow. some species of mosquitoes not all of them topical application of the neem oil so like rubbing it on your body or burning the leaves has really variable effectiveness anywhere from 25 to 75 percent effectiveness generally though its effectiveness is short-lived so it's just a few hours up to about three and that's pretty short compared to some of the modern more synthetic insect repellents that we're going to talk about a little bit later but it does have some repellent ability topical application is actually not encouraged because it is known to irritate skin Mm -hmm. And again, with the potential fertility issues, there have been studies done with that in rats, and they found that when the rats were ingesting it or, or using a lot of the oil, they male rats did become infertile, but it was reversible when they stopped. So it's just something to be very careful with. You should study that. With. Bring it on. <laughs> Infertility, yeah. Woo. <laughs> So it's something to be careful with. In general, it's something that can be okay for nuisance mosquitoes. So that's basically, well, it used to be what we had here until West Nile came along. And now not so much. But mosquitoes that just bite. But if you're in an area that has something more concerning like malaria or if you're trying to prevent Zika transmission or something (laughs) like that, this is not a recommended source. (laughs) So it's somewhat effective, but not for very long. And if you're really trying to keep yourself healthy, look for something a little stronger. So you you mentioned the topical application being an irritant, but what about ingesting super amounts of it? Like if I, is the neem fruit, is it toxic? The neem fruit, is it toxic? I don't believe so. I think there there's definitely some toxicity involved at yeah. certain amounts. It's not, the fruit itself is not typically eaten. It's a small fruit from what I, I just read up on it quickly, but it's pretty small and neem is mainly used for cosmetic and crop purposes it's never been a food really so i heard of it as a food so i couldn't eat this magical satay fruit no i think it would just be something to put in your diffuser and smell (laughs) i can actually tell you that the ld50 of neem oil has been recently evaluated and found to be 31 32 grams per kilogram so it is very non-toxic to humans And you're, te- you're going to tell us what that means in your segment, right? I will. Stay <laughs> tuned. From, from the research that I did see, I believe it, the people who were having any kind of toxicity were people who were doing frequent uh, pesticide applications of closed-in crops. And so they were just getting exposed to it constantly. That's, that's when it was. But it's even not that toxic to bugs. It's just really repellent to them, especially the bitey kind. So, Excellent. That's, that is neem oil interesting. So one that we all really wanted to cover was this Mosicue. Mosicue. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I believe it's Mosicue. Mosicue. Cute name. Terrible product. (laughs) (laughs) Way to bury the lead, honey. (laughs) It's uh, a homeopathic remedy. So as soon as you say that, you you can see where this is going. You get the womp womp. Yeah. (laughs) It's marketed as a bug repellent that you can eat. So it's basically just a sugar tablet that's been sprayed with a very dilute substance that has a variety of active ingredients. Here are my air quotes. (laughs) So some of the active ingredients include rattlesnake bean, uh, which is related to the pinto bean. It is a uh, 10 to the minus 8 dilution. Gumweed in a 10 to the minus 12 dilution. 
Marsh tea, 10 to the minus 3 dilution, so there might actually be a little bit in there, which is a little bit concerning since it's the only thing on this list that is rated likely unsafe (laughs) at non-homeopathic levels. Oh, good. Um, It can cause kidney and urinary tract damage as well as central nervous system excitation. So, you know, not great to have a lot of it, but it's at a 0.1% solution that is, again, sprayed onto a sugar tablet. Probably nothing. You're really worried Probably about. okay. There is also Staves Acre in a 10 to the minus 4 dilution, and Stinging Nettle in a 10 to the minus 6 dilution. Uh, so all of these ingredients are thought to prevent bugs from eating you if you ate them in any sort of normal dose. <laughs> At this dose, they're definitely not going to do anything for you. Good news, probably no side effects either. It was featured on Dragon's Den. Uh, The dragons got taken for a ride and they invested $100,000 into growing this product into the U.S. market. So bad news for them. They're probably never going to manage to get it uh, on the shelves in the U.S. because they, unlike Canada, have decent regulations around stuff like this. So in Canada, the reason that it can be marketed to us is because it is listed as a natural health product. Right. And as we've talked about before, Health Canada will approve anything that is a health product. Basically. They really don't have to prove any sort of efficacy or... Safety, even. Not really safety any either, unless it's challenged in some way. Especially if you are not making specific health claims, they will take a very low bar of evidence. Mm -hmm. Historical usage being one of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which... mm. If she can point to anything in the homeopathic materia medica, which I will point out uh, was developed uh, before the germ theory of disease, then uh, she's fine. Oh, And apparently she points to one study from like 1965 that some of these compounds have been studied as to their effectiveness for bug repellent but so okay. some of them have been studied yeah <laughs> It's a high bar she's clearing. <laughs> what were the results of these studies? Did they pass these studies? The studies are not actually available anymore. So nobody can even read them anymore. Oh good. Yeah. That's great. In the states, you have to prove that something that you're marketing as an insect repellent will actually repel insects, usually by using the product as intended and then sticking your arm into a box full of mosquitoes. Right. So this is not a clinical trial that I will ever be volunteering for. (laughs) No, thank you. So basically, they've invested $100,000 into this product that does nothing and has nothing in it. And they're never going to be able to get it on the shelves in the States because there is no way to prove that it works. So these investors have not got their skeptical pants on when discussing things like this. There was, I believe, one of the dragons was like, well, where's your clinical studies? And that's when she brought up this, uh, well, there was one study in the 1960s. (laughs) Not a good standard of evidence. One study 50 years ago. Sign me right up to give you all the money with that. Yeah. Yeah. So the Winnipeg skeptics would not recommend Mosey Q. Back to you, Laura. All right. Well, since we're talking about things that don't work, I would like to introduce the Mosquito Patch. Apparently, these things have been available since the 70s. I did not know that. I only heard about them doing this research. (laughs) But in various forums, various companies, you've been able to purchase this patch. So the idea is that it's a, a patch that you wear for somewhere between 24 and 36 hours. And the active ingredient is vitamin b1 or thiamine oh see if this was something that worked i would be all over i would 
buy stock in it. Okay. <laughs> the guy at the beach yesterday was wearing one, honey. Oh, was that what that was? That's what a, that was a mosquito patch. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you read the comment sections or on anything saying that these things don't work, oh well. Apparently, they really do. But the plural of anecdotes is not data. So let's move on. How is the B1 supposed to... The way that it's supposed to work, or the theory behind these products, is that the thiamine, or vitamin B1, when you take a lot of it, apparently it changes your sweat, blood, hormone consistency, and it can produce a bad smell through the skin. And mosquitoes are repelled by the smell. So that's the theory behind this. And the patch idea here is that it's a long, continuous infusion of the thiamine so that you get continuous release rather than taking a vitamin and it working for a little while and then having to take another pill right away because it's worn off or something like that. (laughs) So that's how it's supposed to work. Now, I have a few questions with this product. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, can thiamine be absorbed through the skin? So most of our vitamins we get from food and we have, or we get through supplements, which are typically taken either by mouth or we get injections of them. So it bypasses the skin and everything and goes directly into... tissues. I couldn't find, and and I didn't do an exhaustive search, but I'm not certain that thiamine can be absorbed effectively through the skin. I don't know. Generally, things are best absorbed through the skin when they're hydrophobic or lipophilic, so more fat-soluble types of things. Thiamine is a water-soluble vitamin, so it would need to be combined with something that's more fat-soluble in order to actually get it through the skin, if it can, in fact, be absorbed through the skin in, and then get into the bloodstream, and enough so to cause this uh, reaction to happen. So that's something that I have a question about. And just to note, the recommended daily intake for adults for thiamine is somewhere between 1 and 1.5 milligrams a day. It's a pretty small amount. Yeah. Most of us get enough through food, especially because most of our breakfast cereals and stuff like that are enriched with it, so we're okay. Some groups need a little bit more, but it's pretty small. These, what is it in normally? What is it in? Uh, you get it from animal products, particularly meats, and whole grains and legumes. Those are the main sources of of thiamine there. I get most of my B vitamins from energy drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so... (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I did not hear this. I did not hear this. (laughs) That's... That is okay. Actually, the way that we discovered thiamine, or not discovered it entirely, but we, we knew that not getting enough of it causes the disease beriberi. And we started to figure out where we could get thiamine when there was a change in rice production in Asia. Everybody switched from the standard brown rice to the polished white rice, and then everybody started getting beriberi because the bran of the rice had all the thiamine in it. So whole grains for the win, people. Whole grains. This is why we should should eat brown rice, hon. But it's so bad. It is not. It's delicious. (laughs) It's so good. Let's put more salt in it. It would help me get more thiamine. There you go. Repel those mosquitoes. Come on, Ashley. More salt? (laughs) Just flavor it a little bit. Anyway, what I was getting at is that we don't need a lot of thiamine every day. We don't have huge body stores of it, but we don't need a lot either. Typically, the dose on these patches is somewhere between 75 and 300 milligrams. But again, it's supposed to be a high dose and it's supposed to be a steady release. That is how that works. So my first question, can it be absorbed through the skin? 
I don't know. Second question, is thiamine excreted through sweat? Again, the theory is that you take this thiamine, you get this bad smell, and you sort of sweat it out. And the more thiamine you take with these patches, the more you're going to repel mosquitoes, etc. So yes, in fact, it can be excreted through sweat, a very small amount, about 10 nanograms per 100 milliliters of sweat. So a very, very small amount, but there is some. And if you end up sweating a lot because you're in a hot climate or something, you'll sweat out more. However, thiamine is primarily excreted through the urine. So the amount of thiamine excreted in the sweat doesn't really change much, regardless of how much thiamine you're taking in. More so, you're just going to pee out the extra. The idea that you're building up all of this extra thiamine to be sweat out in copious amounts to repel these mosquitoes is losing some steam. So you should take the patch, like put the patch on, collect your urine, and then bathe in that for mosquito repellent. And people repellent? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You've been reading too many historical documents, honey. (laughs) Yes, we don't just bathe in everything. (laughs) And then the third question, and the most important question that I have is, does thiamine repel mosquitoes? Numerous studies have tested this, whether it is... good enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) Good enough for Mosey Q, good enough for me. There have been several studies that have tested this, either by oral administration or through these patches, and they have not seen any repellent effect from this. <laughs> from what I could gather, the idea that thiamine could repel mosquitoes came from a study in the 60s that I couldn't find that it there is a potential link, and I think that these patches just kind of ran with it, or the idea of just taking these mega doses of of thiamine ran with it. Apparently the smell thing can happen, but not to everybody. Wait, are you suggesting that we shouldn't just take basic science lab research and extrapolate it to human subjects and go right into production? Yes. Oh, okay. I have to make a few calls. (laughs) (laughs) Jem, did you invest our savings in the mosquito patch? Uh... Yeah, just the savings. (laughs) So it doesn't appear that the mosquito patch is going to be effective. Wait, I have have another question to add to your list of questions. Yes. Is megadosing on vitamin B1 dangerous? No. Okay. No, it's not going to be. It's water-soluble. We have very small body stores, and and humans have really good urinary excretion of thiamine, so Mm -hmm. it's really not dangerous. There are some vitamins that you can definitely overdose on, particularly fat-soluble, but even some of the water-soluble ones, like niacin, you can overdose on. Oh, yeah. And that's... We we discussed that on our... Yeah, we did. Our drug show. Yeah, absolutely. So you can, but B1 is not one to worry about. It's not going to hurt, but save your money. Okay. Back to you. So, who at this table has ever used Skin So Soft as a bug repellent? Me. Someone else. Lauren has. I have not. We did not do a lot of uh, purchases through through that company. Mm. Avon doesn't recommend Skin So Soft as a bug repellent, and they actually have printed on their website and on some of the packaging now that it's not recommended as a bug repellent and that it's not tested for it, all of this stuff. But people continue to insist that it works really well as a bug repellent. It's a bath oil, and you can get it in sort of a a spritzy spray thing. I never knew it as a bath oil growing up. To me, it was just, it was kept in with, that's what we smelled like all summer. And it didn't have spritz at that time. It was your off? Yeah, we just put it onto cotton swabs and rubbed it all over our body. I think we may have used that when I was a kid, too. Because I don't remember the name, but I remember the 
daubing with oil yeah and like that blue cap on a sort of clear bottle mm. you felt greasy afterward <laughs> that is most bug sprays though yeah. But it is extremely popular, and a lot of people like it because it doesn't smell like the DEET-based bug sprays that smell pretty bad. Consumer Reports did has done a few tests on it. The most recent one, they found that it did provide some protection for about two hours from mosquitoes and deer ticks, uh, but they noted that this was on the very low end, the worst performing bug sprays they tested, most of which work for upwards of seven hours. I also found uh, a study that appeared to be just one researcher testing some different bug sprays on himself. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm it bored was, and I don't have funding. <laughs> uh, it was from 2006, and it was like a very well-written study, and it was in a, a well-respected journal, but the whole thing was the sites used were the author's left arm, right arm, left leg, and right leg. <laughs> Well, that's an N of four, Ashlyn. You can't get better than that. Uh, and the, the different things that he tried, I think it was a he, I didn't actually check, were deep base spray, uh, skin so soft, and a special mixture. <laughs> and the special mixture was a combination of eucalyptus oil, skin so soft, water, and vinegar. Ooh. Yeah, it didn't sound terribly pleasant. Ugh. But what was interesting, I thought, was that he said the the sessions lasted for between 90 minutes and 120 minutes. And the surface area apparently on their legs and arms was approximately the same. They measured this very carefully. <laughs> and an incident would be either a mosquito landing on flesh or biting. Um, and there was care taken not to repeat count different incidents. Uh, so with the with nothing, with no repellent on it all. There were 60 incidents over this period of time. With the mixture, I believe there was 40. And then with Skin So Soft, there were six. And with DEET, there was zero. Hmm. So it was sort of comparable to right. the DEET mixture. Now, yeah. was this the plain Skin So Soft? Or was it because Skin So Soft has also been producing like actual bug sprays? Yeah, yeah. I was going to mention those as well. Uh, but no, this was the, the original brand, Skin So Soft. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they are now um, marketing versions of Skin So Soft that are blended with either the IR3535 and also with Picardin. So these uh, obviously work better, according to the Consumer Reports that I found. But my question is, why not just buy separate bath oil and insect repellent? <laughs> <laughs> Can you say that second one again? Picaridin? Picaridin. And then I've also seen it... Um, Icaridin. Icaridin. Yeah, no, I'll talk actually, about those as well. I've seen it spelled both ways, and yes. I'm not really sure what the difference is. I, I, I can explain that, actually. Okay. Uh, would you like me to do it now? Or <laughs> sure, wait until tell, tell us now. So, Picaridin and Icaridin are uh, generic names for this substance, which is also known as Bayrapel. And when the WHO was originally suggesting generic names for this newly patented chemical, they suggested Picaridin, but the one that was eventually approved is Icaridin. Oh. So technically it's called Icaridin, but uh, everybody calls it Picaridin. Because that was Because the first. that's what they're expecting to call it. <laughs> right. Uh, it seems like if you have it available and don't have anything else available, it's probably good for a short period of time, but, you know, don't let it go for seven hours without reapplying. Right. To add on to interesting things that shouldn't be bug repellents, but are in a small way, 
One study that I came across included a Victoria's Secret perfume called Bombshell in the mix, and they found that similar to that Avon Skin So Soft, the regular stuff, it did have repellent activity for about two hours, that 120 minutes or so. But they do note that they did use high concentrations of this perfume, so it is unclear if those, the amounts of perfume that were used would be what would people would typically be wearing. But, oddly enough, they, that perfume did have repellent activity. So, like, middle school levels of perfume. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Axe body spray levels of concentration. (laughs) The last thing that I wanted to talk about is something called PMD, or paramethane 3,8-diol. I don't know. Sounds like a scary chemical. I don't know if I want that on my body. (laughs) Well, I mean, (laughs) if we're going to talk chemicals, everything's a chemical, guys. Just use some dihydrogen monoxide. Exactly. Wash this right off. (laughs) (laughs) However, this scary-sounding name has a very natural source. This is a compound that is sourced from the lemon eucalyptus tree. This tree typically grows in tropical areas, and now in various parts of the world. So we wouldn't be finding it here in in Winnipeg, but in a lot of the uh, the tropical areas around the world. It's common there. It's not actually a type of eucalyptus. It's something that's a little bit different, but it's close enough. It's known as lemon eucalyptus. So we'll go with that. It was actually discovered by accident. This type of lemon eucalyptus tree has been harvested and it's been a cultivar for years for fragrance and cosmetic purposes because it has that lemony fresh smell. So it's been harvested for that the citronellol and all of those related lemony compounds, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. So what they found with this particular plant is when they would put the leaves through the distillation process, they would get the citronella, but then they found that by accident, this PMD that was left over was actually far more repellent to bugs <laughs> than than uh, they expected it to be. So it was really a surprise thing. And I believe they found it by just going through a bunch of different plants that were used for this kind of thing and saying, what happens when we use this? Sort of like our historical methods. So sometimes this is called the essential oil of lemon eucalyptus, but we have to be careful about that because from some sources that I read, that that type of essential oil, if you buy it here in North America, is not actually containing this PMD. It's more of a citronella-based thing because of the smell, so it depends where you get it. So it's just something to be mindful of, but sometimes it is called an essential oil of lemon eucalyptus. This compound, again, we're not exactly sure how it works, but they think that it affects mosquito smell receptors similar to citronella essential oils, but one of the reasons that they find that it works really well is that it has a low volatility compared to a lot of things. So it doesn't evaporate very quickly. It's had a lot of studies done on it recently, and they've found 95 to 100% effectiveness at repelling multiple types of mosquitoes for seven hours or longer. So this is actually a really, really good thing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. If you get the real stuff. If you get the real stuff. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And they were in these studies. They were really well done studies, and there's a lot of them. And the PMD is actually now recommended alongside with DEET in malaria-prone areas to prevent mosquito bites. So it's that effective, which is pretty impressive. One of the nice things, too, that was noted in a couple of the studies is that the areas where these trees are currently cultivated or are endemic are typically malaria or, you know, dengue fever-type 
places. So they already have this type of plant available. So it's not a, it would be an easy thing to do if DEET products or other types of products are not available. So that's actually really nice. So yeah. it works really well. Like I alluded to, it's very similar to citronella oils here. And I will say that I didn't look into citronella too, too much. Citronella does have some effectiveness as a repellent, but it's not nearly as much as this PMD. And it doesn't last nearly as long. The effect is more like a couple of hours when it comes to citronella oils. So even though that's the one that we all think of, you know, we have our torches and our our candles and our essential oils and body sprays for citronella to keep these mosquitoes away, it's actually the byproduct PMD that we really want. So you can get something that smells like citronella. Make sure it has the PMD in it to be really <laughs> well, effective. Provided that it's available. Right. <laughs> yeah. Read your labels really carefully there. I was mostly talking about the citronella. Oh. It's available. No, it's not. Wah! Yeah. Yes, it is again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, citronella oil actually is not uh, currently licensed as an insect repellent in the EU because uh, there was uh, insufficient data for efficacy. Mm-hmm. So the next one that I wanted to talk about is a product that has been purported to cure everything. Yay! We love those. <laughs> They're our favorite products. So just Googling ACV, I found a website that told me that apple cider vinegar will cure hiccups, cancer, diabetes, and cold symptoms, and everything in between. And that was just the first result that I clicked on when Googling it. In my opinion, the only thing that apple cider vinegar is good for is making vegan cupcakes. Yay! <laughs> but it's also said to be good for keeping insects away from you, and especially from your pets. My mom actually used to put like a quarter cup of apple cider vinegar into my dog's water bowl to keep mosquitoes and ticks and things off of him in the summer. And the only thing it ever did was make our kitchen smell terrible. <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't cause your dog to be dehydrated because it wouldn't drink that gross, gross water. It didn't seem to mind. <laughs> Cole was not the smartest of pups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't seem to mind, but whatever. So there are lots of articles online about using it as a wash to get ticks and fleas off or as a diluted spray for their fur, uh, but I couldn't actually find any evidence of its efficacy or any method of action that would possibly explain it other than it tastes bad to insects. I thought it was interesting that it was very much, like it was all over the place that you should use this to keep off bugs from your pets, but it wasn't as much touted as like a human thing, maybe just because it smells so bad. Yeah. <laughs> And humans don't want it on them. People are used to their dogs smelling bad. I guess. <laughs> but do you really want your dog to smell like a chip truck as well as wet dog? <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> so the last one that I want to touch on was essential oils. Uh, we've talked about a lot of the herbs and botanical things that we can use, but this is sort of a, a specific category of put a bunch of oils together and you'll smell nice and the bugs won't bite you. So you can buy hundreds of combinations of essential oils marketed as bug repellents, places from Amazon or natural health food stores. Some of the most common ones that are listed are things like lavender, lemongrass, patchouli, catnip, peppermint, geranium. So most of these are things that Lauren talked about before too. And it's, it's interesting this way some of them come up over and over and over again, like the mint and stuff like that. But here's a quote from a blog post that I found while researching that I find is very telling. <laughs> it says, here are some of my favorite essential oil combos for repelling bugs. They seem to all work the same. It just depends on what kind of scent you like. <laughs> oh. 
So she recommends the campfire blend, which is 10 drops of rosemary, 6 drops of cedarwood, and 4 drops of cinnamon. The floral blend, which is 8 drops of geranium, 5 drops of lavender, 5 drops of rosemary, and 2 drops of patchouli. The hippie blend, which is 10 drops of lavender, 6 drops of cedarwood, 4 drops of patchouli. Or the fresh blend, which is 12 drops of lemon, 5 drops of peppermint, and 3 drops of eucalyptus. And she ends that by saying, Don't forget to experiment with some different combos and mix it up. Your bugs may be repelled better by some essential oils more than others. (laughs) So that's true, since she does list the eucalyptus oil in there, which might be effective. (laughs) Oh, uh, lemon eucalyptus is not eucalyptus. That's true. There is a very specific kind, so your mileage may vary. Citronella oil is actually, the plant is a type of lemongrass. Oh, that makes some sense. That's cool. So aside from the uh, lemon eucalyptus, which Laura talked about, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for any of the essential oils, uh, but there are endless, endless, endless articles with lots and lots of different recipes. One I was particularly interested in was cedarwood oil. We've used cedar posts on our camp bed for a lot of years because they're supposed to have sort of bug-repelling properties. Right. And so we figure the bugs won't climb up them as much if they're if our bed posts are made of cedar. It seemed to work. Uh, yeah, it seemed fairly effective. But looking around, I found that there was some evidence that things like cedar closets or big blocks of cedar wood in a small enclosed space like a chest or a closet... Uh, might have some use for keeping bugs away. It probably isn't very effective outside a like a small contained space. Mm. Mm. Okay. Did you take a look at the tea tree oil? No, I didn't look into that much. But again, any sort of search for essential oil, bug repellent. There have been so many studies done on everything we can think of to yeah. keep bugs away. And there's really only a few effective ones, which Jim is now going to talk about. So I'm not sick today. Hopefully I'll be a little bit more awake for my segment this month than last month, which was actually, as we're recording this last week, to lift lift the curtain a little bit because we were expecting a baby and it would be really nice to have a month off. (laughs) And hey, I successfully avoided interrupting anyone's uh, segment to talk about my crush on Keith Hamilton Cobb. So that's an improvement over last month. Let's talk about some modern chemical repellents, shall we? When people say chemical, usually they're talking about synthetic chemicals, as we've mentioned. And they're scary. (laughs) And unpronounceable. Even if it simply replicates a naturally occurring chemical, they'll still call it a synthetic chemical and it will be scary. The closer you look, the harder it is to actually make a distinction between natural and artificial, which could be a segment all of its own. But for uh, each of these modern chemical repellents, I'm going to try to examine both the efficacy of it and also any potential health impact, because we know that a lot of these, like like DEET, for example, have had some health scares associated with them. So let's see if, if there's cause for concern. Because I'm going to be talking about safety as well as efficacy, I figured I might as well start with a very brief overview of how lethal doses are determined in toxicology. When we're talking about toxicology, the term L LD50 is going to probably come up a lot. So LD stands for lethal dose. The dose of the substance in question is typically measured, not always, but typically measured uh, per kilogram body weight. So for a guy my size, which admittedly isn't terribly big, uh, you'd multiply the number by 70. I'm way harder to kill than Jim. Yes. So the way you determine the LD50 is when studying a substance, you administer it to a group of animals, uh, typically rodents, and you just keep upping the dose until they start dying. 
because the lethality of a toxin can vary widely, not only between organisms, but also between individuals in the group, the lethality is typically measured in the percentage of subjects who die after an exposure to that dose. So the LD50 of a substance is also known as the median lethal dose. It's the dose of the substance that will kill 50% of subjects in the group. The LD50 is the standard measurement uh, for toxicity. And if you limited yourself to the dose that was, uh, say, universally lethal, which I guess you might call the LD100, you might get a very skewed perspective of how dangerous the substance is because of how widely resistances vary. Occasionally, LD1 and LD99 measurements are used, depending on purposes, although that means you need to kill a lot more animals. <laughs> you need a much bigger sample group in order to get those numbers. And the LD99 might be orders of magnitude larger as far as doses concerned than the LD50. So LD50 is your your standard. I looked up the LD50 of vitamin D the other day and it was I've surprisingly deadly. <laughs> I've got that number right here. Oh wow. I'll be giving some examples here. There are several methods of estimating the LD50 for uh, substances uh, in humans. Usually that involves measuring the LD in mice and then converting it to a dosage per kilogram body weight and then extrapolating to human norms. You typically have to make some adjustments for differences in metabolism or known toxic resistances in mice or in humans. May not be to scale. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the LD50 values can also be estimated based on human cell cultures. And because of increasing concerns about animal welfare, other methods of estimating LD uh, levels are currently being investigated and trialed. And the LD50 will also actually vary by means of administration of the substance. Yep. Administering a substance intravenously will often result in a much lower LD50, that is to say a higher lethality, so you need a lower dose, than administering it orally. And uh, administering it subcutaneously can also give you a different, uh, a different response. But generally speaking, the lower the LD50, the more toxic the substance, the lower the dose you need to kill something. And remember, pretty much everything, including things we'd normally consider benign, has an LD50. The poison is always in the dose. So here are some uh, LD50 examples. All of these are taken from rodents, usually mice, some of them for rats. And I'll start with uh, least toxic going to most toxic. So uh, neem oil, as previously mentioned, uh, has an LD50 of 32,000 milligrams per kilogram. So all of these will be in milligrams per kilogram. So that's 32 grams per kilogram body weight. That is a lot of neem oil to ingest. A lot of tiny fruits. I need to ingest two kilograms of neem oil to, uh, to kill me <laughs> if I'm the, the average subject. Sugar has an LD50 of 30,000 milligrams per kilogram or 30 grams per kilogram. Alcohol has an LD50 of 7 to 10,000 milligrams per kilogram. Thiamine, vitamin B1, uh, has an LD50 of 8,200 milligrams per kilogram, so 8 grams. Glyphosate, or Roundup, has an LD50 of 5,600 milligrams per kilogram. That's pretty safe, <laughs> to be honest, for well, humans. considering that sugar was what? 3,000? No, no. Sugar was 30,000. 30, so sugar is uh, safer mm -hmm. than glyphosate for acute doses. Uh, salt, though, is, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> is still coming up. Menthoglycol, or oil of lemon eucalyptus, has an LD50 of 5,000 milligrams per kilogram. Salt, 
LD50 of 3,000 milligrams per kilogram. Retinol or vitamin A used in the patch has an LD50 of 2,000 milligrams per kilogram. Acetyl salicylic acid or aspirin, LD50 of about 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams per kilogram. THC has an LD50 of 700 to 1,200 milligrams per kilogram. Wait a Although there is some evidence that it is more deadly when inhaled than when ingested. I was just going to say, so like the aspirin packages are lying to me. If I take extra aspirins, I'm not going to die. This is lethality, <laughs> not is, like yeah. gastric problems and liver problems. Yeah. Acetaminophen or paracetamol or... Tylenol. Tylenol. <laughs> has an LD50 of 340 milligrams per kilogram. Caffeine, LD50 of 150 to 250 milligrams per kilogram. I'm not there yet, guys. DDT has an LD50 of, it's actually quite a wide range. It varies by species quite a bit, but uh, 113 to 800 milligrams per kilogram. Heroin has an LD50 of 22 milligrams per kilogram, but that is a measurement for IV, not oral ingestion. Uh, vitamin D has an oral LD50 of 10 milligrams per kilogram. Vitamin D is very deadly. Nicotine has an LD50 of 3 milligrams per kilogram. And strychnine has an LD50 of 1 milligram per kilogram. That stuff is deadly. <laughs> it's also worth noting, before we move on, that the LD50 is typically used to measure acute toxicity. You know, you take it and you die. Uh, you take it all at once and yeah, you die. Uh, usually immediately or within a period of up to like 30 30 days, depending on how they're doing their uh, measurements in the study. So it's not useful in measuring the effects of long-term exposure. So you can build up a tolerance to iocane powder? <laughs> right. Okay. Just checking. So let's talk about DEET. DEET, which is somehow supposed to be an acronym for N-N-diethylmetatoluamide, is an oily yellow substance that's the active ingredient in most commercial insect repellents, including the uh, popular brand OFF. It effectively repels mosquitoes and several other biting pests, such as fleas and ticks. Uh, ticks, by the way, aren't insects. They are arachnids. Yes. Until recently, the prevailing hypothesis was that DEET worked by blocking insect olfactory receptors. When I was a kid, I heard that it prevented insects from sensing the carbon dioxide in our breath. Uh, more recently, it was believed that DEET worked by blocking insects from detecting octanol, which is a compound in human breath and sweat. It's also called mushroom alcohol. Ooh. But the current theory, which is actually backed up by experimental evidence, is that Rather than masking our presence from mosquitoes, DEET is, in fact, actually a repellent in the true sense. Insects, including mosquitoes, just really hate the smell. <laughs> and who can blame them? The stuff is terrible. <laughs> there is actually also some evidence to suggest that the application of DEET can increase the efficacy, that is to say toxicity, of certain insecticides in addition uh, to just being a repellent. That seems strange, especially if it is just a repellent. Several of these uh, substances are primarily used as repellents, but also have secondary uses as insecticides as well. Chemistry is complex. So are biological systems. Let's talk about efficacy. So several independent investigations, including one performed by Consumer Reports, have found direct correlations between deep concentration and the length of time users were protected against insect bites with application of 100% DEET offering up to 12 hours of protection, with 20 to 34% concentrations offering between 3 and 6 hours of protection. Uh, the CDC recommends formulations containing 30 to 50% DEET to prevent the spread of insect-borne disease. 
And 30% is the most you can get in Canada right now, right? I believe that's correct, yes. And I will talk about that momentarily. So, DEET has been in use since the 50s, and it's generally considered pretty safe. The oral LD50 of DEET is 1750 to 2700 milligrams per kilogram in rats. I would have to consume more than 100 grams of DEET in order to die. Wow, I would definitely not have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. it, it is a uh, mild irritant and can occasionally result in rashes, breathing difficulty, burning eyes, and headaches. There have been some reports of uh, seizures being linked to uh, DEET exposure, but nothing that has been seen in controlled conditions. And if those reports are accurate, it would still be occurring because of the widespread use of DEET. We would still only be seeing seizures in one in every 100 million DEET users. Teeny tiny fraction. Mm -hmm. The American Academy of Pediatrics has deemed DEET safe for both adults and children in concentrations between 10 and 30%, although they recommend against applying DEET-based repellents in infants younger than two months. Health Canada guidelines are similar, although a little bit more cautious, recommending that children younger than 12 only use repellents containing less than 10% DEET, that children under 2 receive no more than one application per day, and that DEET should not be used in infants under 6 months at all. According to Cornell University's Pesticide Information Project, there is some evidence to suggest that prolonged exposure to DEET, for example, among Park Service employees in the Everglades, <laughs> uh, may affect mood or sleep patterns, but that needs to be investigated further. Mm -hmm. So why, when, when I was a kid, I remember like people saying, oh, ban DEET, ban all this sort of stuff. Does anybody else remember that? Oh, yeah. There's still the camp of it's a neurotoxin. It's terrible. It has all these side effects. Just go natural. And I think so much of that is, is actually because it smells so bad and they associate that with evil chemicals. Yeah, yeah it feels like it does. It feels like... I'm putting chemicals on. I'm putting agro pesticides on me right now. Like that's it does have that feeling to yeah. it. Uh, and it may also be because DEET is also a solvent, right? It effectively dissolves paint, varnish, nail polish, and several synthetic <laughs> fibers, several synthetic fabrics, uh, including rayon, spandex, and vinyl. So that's what we wore a lot of during the 80s. Right. Yeah. That can be scary to people, right? Absolutely, Because yeah. they assume that because it works that way on plastics, it will work that way on, I guess, your lungs or something? I saw that argument in something I was reading earlier today during my research. Believe it or not, chemistry is complicated. <laughs> Biology is complicated. <laughs> that's not how it works. I remember spraying it helpfully, cleaning you know, cleaning as children do. My father's car once, and oh, the no. dashboard was forever speckled with repellent. Oh no! With the notices of your help. <laughs> but did the mosquitoes come in? Not for the next few hours, anyway. <laughs> We've talked about lots of studies already of the efficacy of natural DEET alternatives, and a lot of them will conclude that uh, the natural repellents are, quote, just as good as DEET. But keep in mind that when doing these studies, they tend to test their, their chosen natural repellent against a very low concentration of DEET, like 5 to 6% DEET 
While increased DEET concentration doesn't appear to directly affect efficacy, it has more to do with how long the protection lasts. For comparison, OFF Family Care is about 15% DEET, while Deepwoods OFF is 25% DEET and also contains other similar toluamides. So keep in mind that when they're making these comparisons, they're not necessarily comparing apples to apples. Right. So the next uh, repellent that I'll be talking about is IR3535, which stands for Insect Repellent I guess number 3,535, although it's also known as ethyl butyl acetyl aminopropionate. I'd actually never heard of this one before, but it's a common ingredient in DEET-free insect repellents. I guess they're cashing in on this. We're a different scary chemical, not that scary chemical. <laughs> uh, it's in Coleman's Go Ready Skin Smart insect repellent. Also in Coleman Lamps. <laughs> The Skin So Soft Bug Guard Plus uh, has IR3535 as an option. It uh, is a synthetic amino acid developed by Merck in the late 70s and early 80s. It doesn't share DEET's strong odor and taste, uh, (laughs) which is a plus. Like DEET, though, it is a mild irritant and can dissolve some plastics. It performs as well as DEET against ticks and the Culex mosquitoes, uh, which are a vector for West Nile, although it may be slightly less effective than DEET against the Aedes mosquitoes, uh, which is the mosquito that carries dengue fever. According to Consumer Reports, quote, IR3535 is a good DEET alternative with many of the same advantages and fewer disadvantages. The LD50 for IR3535 is... 14 to 24 milliliters per kilogram, which would be, assuming roughly the same density as water, which it wouldn't, I guess it would be less dense than water since it's an oil, but it would be roughly, you know, 14,000 to 24,000 milligrams per kilogram. The next one I'm going to talk about is Icaridin or Picaridin, which mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. It goes under the consumer brand Bay Repel or KBR3023. Icaridin is the non-proprietary name of hydroxyethyl isobutyl piperidine carboxylate. I think I smoked that once. Goodness gracious. It is a colorless, odorless, non-irritating substance, and it can be found in repellents such as Cutter Advanced, or again in the Skin So Soft Bug Guard Plus line. Unlike DEET and IR3535, it does not dissolve plastics. And according to the WHO, Icaridin, quote, demonstrates excellent repellent properties comparable to and often superior to those of the standard DEET. Consumer Reports agrees, rating it as among the most effective insect repellents when used at a 20% concentration, although a 2006 retest found that when used at a lower 7% concentration, Icaridin provided little to no protection against the Aedes mosquito, the vector for dengue fever, and only a few hours of protection against the Culex mosquito. From everything I've read, the 80s mosquito is a bit of a bastard. (laughs) In rats, the oral LD50 of Icaridin is 4,700 milligrams per kilogram. And the last repellent that is applied to the body that I'm going to mention is IBI-246, which is also known as 2-undecanone, or methylnonilketone. (laughs) which is an oily organic compound that occurs naturally in bananas, ginger, strawberries, and some tomato species. It's used as an ingredient in natural flavorings and perfumes, and research from North Carolina State University has suggested that it can repel mosquitoes, quote, 
as effectively as Diet, although we know that that is a statement that you know has a, has a bit of a red flag associated with it. Right. I personally wouldn't put my confidence in IBI 246 just yet, as the efficacy data are still preliminary. And as far as I can tell, 2-undecanone is not yet on the market as an insect repellent, and its safety and efficacy in this regard have not yet been evaluated by the WHO. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that one at all. No. Mm -hmm. The LD50 is known, however, as 2-undecanone is used in other industries. The oral LD50 in rats is about 5,000 milligrams per kilogram, which is comparable to a Acaridin and several of the others that we've talked about. So none of these things are extremely deadly. They're all in the less <laughs> deadly than salt category. <laughs> It's a good category to be in. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to talk about two more ways to deal with insects that are not applied directly to the forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where we all spray all of our bug repellent. <laughs> Apply directly to the forehead. It's just because yours is so big, honey. Yeah. It is. So, uh, mosquito coils, first of all. Uh, mosquito coils are actually not a repellent, they are an insecticide. Uh, the active ingredient is powdered pyrethrum, which is a genus of old-world chrysanthemum that's been used as an insecticide in Europe for centuries, and its first recorded use was actually in 4th century BCE in Persia. I had no idea. I thought they just, like, didn't like the smell yeah. of smoke. Yeah, I thought it was one of those kinds of things. Huh. Uh, really? It may also function as a repellent, but it, it, its primary purpose is to just kill the buggers. So does the smoke have the oils in it still? Yep. Is, okay. Mm -hmm. huh. It's a way of volatile, like, putting them into the air. Yep. Yeah. So I wasn't able to find detailed efficacy information for mosquito coils, which may be due to the difficulty in measuring efficacy in the way that they're typically used. Yeah. But we do have some data about the way pyrethrum interacts with insects, and it is a contact poison that attacks the nervous system, quickly paralyzing insects and often killing them outright. When present in non-fatal doses, it does still appear to have a repellent effect and can stun them and they'll, they'll fly away. In terms of health impact, pyrethrum has an oral LD50 of 370 milligrams per kilogram in mice, so it is uh, a lot more toxic than a lot of the ones that we've talked about, but, you know, it's not an instant killer to mammals. It is harmful to fish. We do know that for sure. Uh, less toxic to mammals and birds. It is biodegradable and it is considered comparatively safe, especially for use around food. Humans actually have been found to have a higher tolerance, so the LD50 in humans is probably higher than uh, 370 milligrams per kilogram. Chronic toxicity in humans has also been found to be pretty low. However, a 2003 study published in Environmental Health Perspectives took a close look at emissions from several popular brands of mosquito coils used in China and Malaysia. So I'll quote from the study here. Exposure to the smoke of mosquito coils, similar to the tested ones, can pose significant acute and chronic health risks. For example, burning one mosquito coil would release the same amount of fine particulate mass as burning 75 to 137 cigarettes. The emission of formaldehyde hmm. from one burning coil can be as high as that released from burning 51 cigarettes. So that well, it sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While it's worth keeping in mind that mosquito coils are typically used outdoors in North America, uh, where, like secondhand cigarette smoke, the fumes can rapidly dissipate, the study's authors note that it is common practice in Asia, Africa, and South America to burn these coils indoors. Hmm. So exercise caution. 
And uh, the mosquito coils are actually based on tradition where pyrethrum and other incenses were burned to ward off uh, insects. I had mm-hmm. read something about that in some of my... I decided not to touch on it, but like frankincense and myrrh were mm-hmm. used as insect repellent in the smoking kind of way. Mm-hmm. So because it is kind of dispersed through the environment, like the next one that I'm going to talk about, you know, you can drink the sea one sip at a time, but it's hard to know how much of an effect you're really going to have. Yeah. You know, how, how many drops are in that bucket? If you're killing lots of mosquitoes, I don't know how many mosquitoes are in your yard, but it's hard to know what percentage of them are going to be right. taken out by the coils and what percentage are still going to going to bite you. That's it's a really hard thing to study. There are a lot of mosquitoes in my yard. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just putting that out there. So many. And so the last thing I'm going to cover is the mosquito magnet. Mosquitoes are attracted to, among other things, warmth, carbon dioxide, and chemicals found in our sweat and breath. I'll quote uh, from this description at HowStuffWorks.com. One easy way to create a mosquito trap would be to take a cow and place it in your yard. The cow would act as the attractant for the mosquitoes because the cow would give off the chemical signature that mosquitoes crave. A cow is warm. It releases certain plant chemicals because it eats grass all day, and it produces carbon dioxide with every breath. If you had a vacuum cleaner that could suck up every mosquito that came near your cow, you would have a mosquito trap. If you use this trap for several weeks, it would start to make a dent in the population of female mosquitoes. After four to six weeks, you could probably create enough of a dent to start to depress the entire mosquito population in your yard. With the number of female mosquitoes down, there would be a lot fewer eggs being laid. That, in turn, would mean fewer mosquitoes, and eventually the population would collapse. I'm sold. The mosquito (laughs) magnet and similar traps made by other manufacturers uses a catalytic converter to turn propane into carbon dioxide and water. It also produces heat, turning it, in effect, into the cow in our example. A cartridge containing a chemical compound such as octanol improves the lure, and the system is completed with a vacuum component that sucks approaching mosquitoes into a screen compartment and holds them there. According to the manufacturer, it takes four to six weeks for a mosquito magnet to have a significant impact on the mosquito population in an area, but they maintain that it can actually depress the population sufficiently to cause a collapse, especially when you use multiple magnets in an area. There's essentially no human health impact to mosquito magnets. I mean, aside from intentionally releasing a bunch of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, I guess. (laughs) A lot of propane. Yeah. Uh, The units and the propane and attractant cartridges can be rather expensive, but you don't actually burn the propane at the same rate that you would for like a barbecue, for example, because it is a catalytic Mm -hmm. conversion. It uses a lot less propane at a time, but they, you know, they can be uh, a little bit expensive, especially to buy the initial unit. And while they're not as loud as a shop vac, they're not exactly silent either. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They sound like... And how close do you have to be to them to feel the effect? You know, is it the kind of thing that you could put, if you had a big yard, way out in the back corner so you didn't hear it and still supposedly feel the effect? Or would you would you have to be closer? I assume it would be centered on the machine, so... Ideally, actually, you want to place it upwind. You want to find where the prevailing wind is and place mm-hmm. it upwind, you know, portion of the yard, so that the mosquito population in your yard is going to sense the attractant and the carbon dioxide, and they'll head in that direction. Little do they know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
like I mentioned, it does take several weeks. Right. It's not just even really have an effect on the population, and it's not like a mosquito coil where you use it and then you turn it off when you're not using it. You're running this thing constantly to try to kill all the mosquitoes in the area. That's something I'd never really understood about it. I thought it was the kind of thing where, oh, we're having a barbecue tonight, let's pull out the mosquito magnet, turn it on, and then turn it off once everybody goes home. I'm pretty sure that's how my parents used ours. It's entirely possible (laughs) that that's how a lot of people use them. That is not their uh, recommended use. It would certainly be cheaper. That makes way more sense, though. If we just attract them all and kill them, then there's less to go around. Yeah. It's not a big bug zapper. The uh, manufacturer uh, provides copious case studies that support the efficacy of the mosquito magnet at decreasing mosquito populations, although most of these are comparisons with competing products rather than uh, this is a measure of, you know, mosquito population declines over time. So it's not a scientific study. They certainly do work to attract and trap mosquitoes. That's kind of non-controversial. You can see them accumulating in these traps. (laughs) The kill jar. You can see, yeah. (laughs) Well, you you get like this little screen compartment. You can pull it out and empty it. And is also non-controversial that certain mosquitoes are attracted to certain types of attractant that you can, uh, the cartridges you can put it in. Uh, so I could use them. Ashland's blood on the cartridge <laughs> and it would get all <laughs> the mosquitoes <laughs> in the world. But it is really difficult to evaluate how much of a dent you're really going to make in the population with this kind of approach. Okay. So should you get a mosquito magnet? I have no idea. I'm not planning to. <laughs> yeah, so there are quite a few that we haven't covered. There are so many. Malathion is a pretty common one mm-hmm. that is controversial in our city. That's a larvicide yes. uh, rather than a repellent. And actually, Winnipeg is the only city in North America that continues to do regular malathion sprays. We're phasing it's, it out as soon as we're done. Phased out. It's yes. a larvicide? I yeah. thought it killed adult mosquitoes. Sorry, Laura, you are right. It is not a larvicide. It is an insecticide, generally. That's what I thought. Because they stop, they stop spraying it if there's like high winds and stuff, because it's not very effective anymore. Or if it's too, or if it rains and stuff like that, where yeah. the larvicides, they just spray that into any into kind dishes. of standing water yeah. or potential standing water. My point is, there are a lot of things that we could probably keep finding articles about forever. These are some of the more common ones that people use. This should give you a, an idea of where to start when we go camping. Yeah. So just to recap, our best bets uh, are DEET, IR3535, and Icaridin, and Oil of Lemon Eucalyptus. Yeah, Those well, four top PMD. List. PMD. That's the chemical you want. <laughs> How about some mint? <laughs> and if all else fails, mint. Mojitos! Woo! Wait, does that mean that mojitos are like insect repellent or something? Sure, yep. Laura. Okay. Sure. If all else fails, use fire. <laughs> That's what Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link taught me. But it depends what you burn, Jam. Mosquitoes, in this case. <laughs> <laughs> Just to light them all up. Yep. On that note, this was fun. Yeah. A uh, much later topic. What are we going to be talking about next month, Jim? So we're going to be talking about the lightest of light topics. We are going to talk about space aliens and pseudo-history. What? Nice. <laughs> Chariots of the Gods. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> this has been Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Have a great night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Middle-aged Europe. <laughs> you know when it starts niggling at the, at the back of my mind. I'm like, a motorcycle. Can I imagine that? <laughs> no, I probably said middle-aged Europe. <laughs> Not right. much of Europe during that time period got to what we consider middle-aged. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Absolutely. I said the absolutely again. I'm I know. sorry. I'm, so, I'm oh, sorry I mentioned it to you. No. I'm sorry I mentioned it to you. I, I shouldn't talk about people's vocal no, no, texts no. to them. It's good because I have to. I have to change it. I have to think of a different word now. Yeah, no, that one has, has been a long time. I know. And no, everybody I, at this table is guilty of soap. So, oh, so. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what else can I say? Somebody give me some synonyms. If you have the urge to say it, just don't say anything at all. It's usually not necessary. So I'll go with... Yeah. Okay. Radio. Or if you have to say absolutely, at least only say it once. Instead I of four times try. in a row. In the, in the last podcast, I was like, "Was is this a tour or a three? No, that was three absolutely. I'll cut it down Shut to one. <laughs> I've never noticed that you're absolute when, when I'm editing, your absolutely's haven't been bugging okay. me. Okay. As I said to you earlier, it is better than my, one of my many vocal tics is when I want to speak, I'll just start throwing in a few syllables to like get the motor running. <laughs> <Yep>. And then... <laughs> So, well, I, uh, it reminds me of when... <laughs> I can't think of words to start a sentence now because I'm self-conscious you can't about use everything. So. <laughs> just start with so and we'll edit it out. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, you can just take it out. Absolutely. Shit! <laughs> I thought that was on purpose. No! This is the funniest thing that has ever happened on this podcast. silently over here. <laughs> Don't cry silently. Do your podcast bit. Oh, okay, if I have to. He's keeping the nest egg in that beard. Oh, God. I'll never find it. <laughs> this is the last podcast I'm going to be recording with this beard. Yay! Oh, sad, We're all so happy. Sad moment. It's okay, hon. I like Watch. the beard. Next podcast, Jim's voice will be slightly less muffled. <laughs> More Newman's, less fur. Yes, exactly. Nonsense. <laughs> Poppycock. <laughs> Boulder Dash. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Absolutely.